0: Downtown productions in cooperation with zone radio presents downtown the podcast from the historic zone radio studios here's your host rich kimball
1: hey there welcome in yes it is downtown the podcast episode number 246 if you're keeping count from the zone radio studios here in bangor maine rich kimball carrie haskell with you we're brought to you each week by cross insurance where security meets strength. We have a big party plan for the, uh, the 250th podcast. Anything going on special? Nothing that I've heard, but uh, who knows what surprises maybe. Make up a king the- cake for us. Would Ooh. you do that? Uh, That'd be nice. Uh, you know, keep it in the New Orleans theme. Maybe some hurricanes. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Anything like that. That's well, a few weeks away. Uh, episode 246 this week. Two fine guests for you. Uh, A little bit later on, we're going to talk love and romance and keeping your partner happy with uh, author Laura Korn discussing her bestseller, 101 Nights of Great Sex. Up first though on the program, we talk about a music legend, Peter Asher, who first stepped in a studio, I think about 60 years ago, has had a remarkable career in the business from his days with Gordon Waller is Peter and Gordon, one of the first vanguards of the British invasion, with a song written by his, uh, well, his, his housemate at the time, Paul McCartney, who was dating Peter's sister, Jane, uh, to his days working for Apple Records, where he discovered James Taylor. Uh, went on to produce and manage JT, Linda Ronstadt, and more, and continues to work in the music business now. Matter of fact, as it produced the new album that's coming out soon from former Bangles lead singer Susanna Hopps. David Jax has written about all of it in a wonderful new book called Peter Asher, A Life in Music. Here's our conversation with David on downtown. David, thank you so much for being with us. Well, Rich, thank you for having me. And I have to give a big shout out to our mutual friend, Mark Scott Ricketts, for getting us together.
2: Yes, yes, the great and powerful.
1: <laughs> well uh we love peter here on the show he's uh, been on a number of times and is a wonderful guest what drew you to the story of peter asher
2: uh good question well hearing that song uh certainly always takes me back to when i was eight years old and i first heard it uh, and was diving headfirst into the whole british invasion that was going on of course i saw the beatles and the ed sullivan show and well, that would be a good career. Um, and I was just listening to radio all the time and um, always loved uh, Peter and Gordon's records. and um, you know, always was wondering, you know you'd see the name like George Martin produced by George Martin on the Beatle Records. and I'd go, well, what is what's the producer? What do they do? Um, and the more I got interested in music and was listening to music and, and Peter went on to start putting his name on labels as a producer, uh, you're always wondering how records get made and, uh, you know, how do, how, do, how do you write a song? Once you have a song, what do you how do you make that come alive in the studio? Um, so I was always interested in that sort of thing and followed Peter's career and I just happened to bump into him at one point and... Uh, And once I interviewed him, uh, and I was thinking of it as just like an article in a a magazine or something. And then I thought, well, this guy's career has just been so amazing. Um, I think it's a book. So that's what started me on that journey.
1: And one of the people who didn't think it was a book anybody would want to read was Peter himself. That's right. The
2: second time I interviewed him after I did it the first time, and and then started you know transcribing it, um, and I thought, well, you know, this this should be a book. I think so. I went back and interviewed him a second time and said, well, are you going to write an autobiography? And he said, no, I have no interest. People have asked me to do that, and I just I just am not going to do it. And I said, well, I'd like to try. Uh, I'd like. I think this is a book, and he looked at me like I was nuts. And he said, "Well, who's who's going to want to read it? It's just me." And I said, "Well, I think some people would be would be interested in your career." So uh, he kind of, you know, begrudgingly was like, "Well, okay, if you want to." And but uh, he was always very gracious with his time. Anytime I, you know, I would kind of go back to him. Uh, every year uh, after i'd spoken with more people and had more questions and he was always yeah all right let's get together you know next sunday and was always uh ready to you know indulge me i kept thinking at some point he was just going to go well you know all right that's enough you know go away <laughs> but he, he he you know he never did so he, he at one point he said well i admire your persistence
1: well and, and, and persistence uh, was yeah. re- required too because this uh this book has been uh it's been a long time coming, and uh, someone could write a book about the journey you've taken to get this project <laughs> completed.
2: Yeah, it, uh, there were a lot of ups and downs. Uh, you know, I, w- I was able to make my way over to London and, and go to Abbey Road Studios and talk with George Martin and do all this stuff. And that was just like a, you know, a lifetime high. Uh, when I came back from that trip, I was just, you know, floating. Because I'd always wanted to, you know, I, I, to anyone who's interested in this kind of music and grew up in that era, you know, you'd want to go to Abbey Road. You'd want to, you know, be able to sit down with George Martin for an hour. Uh, but then within two weeks of coming back, my house was burglarized, and I was about a hundred pages into a, a first draft, and there went my computer and my drives and my recording equipment, and and so, of course, I got very depressed, but uh, it took me a few months to kind of go, all right, well, you know, you've you've gone this far, you you can't stop now. Uh, So life would just kind of keep getting in the way. I'd lose a job or I'd have to look for a job or I had to have to move. And every time something like that would happen, I just kind of set it aside. But then I'd go, all right, all right, let's, you know, start the ball rolling again and and just keep going. So yeah, I guess at some point I just decided I I couldn't stop no matter what was (laughs) happening. And so well,
1: here we are. Well, it's a wonderful uh, piece of scholarship as well. You talked to so many people along the way, uh, and, and as you pointed out, also uh, a lot of the people that you've talked with have passed on since you interviewed them. And so uh, this is, in many ways, such a, I think, a wonderful and important musical historical record.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate. You know, we lost David Crosby recently, and uh, he's in the book. And uh, of course, I mentioned uh, George Martin. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, Kenny Edwards, who played bass for Linda Ronstadt for years, I had a nice talk with him. Um, Lots of just lots of people that, you know, every time we turn around these days, you know, we seem to be losing somebody else. But, yeah, there's a lot of great uh, interviews in the book besides Peter, of course. Uh, You know, James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, uh, Jackson Brown, uh, Marianne Faithful. That was an interesting conversation. (laughs) Um, Graham Nash, uh, Randy Newman, I spoke to Brandy Newman, uh, he was in the midst of, uh, you know, doing one of his um, movie soundtracks and he was sitting at the piano. And as we would talk, he would, of course, I can't really put it in the book, but he would try to he'd come up with, you know, some some line about how he, you know, he was saying how people were just, um, when, when he was working with Peter on the album uh, Faust, uh, that he had to do a lot of retakes because Peter likes things kind of just so. And he was kind of commenting that uh, the, his time is, you know, is more Newman time than anything else. And he kind of in <laughs> with plonk on the piano as to kind of give me an example of what he meant. And so that was that was a fun interview. But, yeah, lots of people are in the book and uh, all, you know, praising Peter uh, for his his honesty and his business sense, of course, his musical talent above all else, his sense of humor. So, uh, yeah, I think you get a nice picture of Peter, not just um, his his production work, but uh, hopefully a, a little
1: bit about the man himself. We're talking with David Jacks. His book is Peter Asher, A Life in Music. And uh, uh, Peter's life in the entertainment world began even before his entry into music as a child actor.
2: Yes, he was a child actor along with his uh, both his sisters, um, his mom, um, I guess a neighbor, said, you know, you should get your kids in front of the camera because they were so kind of cute and precocious. They all had red hair. So they were able to get signed up. Uh, Peter, I think, was six years old, uh, or maybe seven at the most. When he uh, did his first film, he was acting opposite uh, Claudette Colbert, for those of you who don't <laughs> remember hers, she, uh, Academy Award winning actress um and did a lot of uh, various movies a lot of television a lot of radio even on the stage uh stage work in London so he was doing that a lot growing up but then once he started going to uh, Westminster uh a very uh, uh illustrious private school in London um he had to kind of put that aside because uh they you know they wouldn't let him off for stuff it's uh, you know a very strict kind of school. So uh, he had to kind of put the acting aside, but he was already because his mother was uh, an an oboe professor at the Royal Academy of Music. uh, Music was, you know, filling the household and he was already interested. So he started uh, doing, you know, skiffle, which was kind of a precursor to rock and roll in in England um, and started playing bass. He was uh, a jazz bassist for a while and that was big in England. Um, and so he pursued more of a musical career.
1: And as you point out in the book, uh, Peter and Gordon had a great success uh, starting with the song we played, A World Without Love. They were very different personalities, though.
2: Yes, Peter was uh, very much a kind of an intellectual. Uh, he read a lot. He still does. Um, he was interested in, you know, science, and of course, uh, acting. Uh, he was he was just Asher family was um very um into the arts and the sciences his father of course a famous uh, uh, doctor um so yeah uh, that was the way the Asher family was whereas with Gordon he was he didn't care about uh about school at all except uh, for sports he kind of excelled in that and uh, he was more of a hellraiser uh than Peter was so uh, interesting mix of personalities. Um, I think when I interviewed Gordon, he told me that uh, he said uh, Peter was a human being and I was just an animal. That's the way he describes <laughs> himself. <laughs> so, yeah, but, I, you know, I said to Peter at one point, you know, that must have been, you know, he must have been quite a handful to deal with uh, during those, you know, the Peter and Gordon years. And he said, you know, no, he really wasn't. I mean, his drinking would get in the way sometimes, but it was more, you know, his personal life uh, was maybe more of a mess. Uh, It didn't affect uh, whenever they got on stage. Uh, He, uh, he, he knew what to do.
1: Well, if you want to pursue a career in music, it it doesn't hurt if your sister is dating the most successful songwriter in the world. And uh, for a while there, (laughs) uh, Peter was uh, just down the hall from Paul McCartney when he moved into the Asher home for a while.
2: Yes, uh, yeah, his his family was a little more um liberal I guess than a lot of uh, uh, families uh, at the time. Um and uh Paul was hanging around a lot, uh dating Jane. Uh so they had a spare room upstairs and they said, "Well, well look, why don't you just take over that room?" And then, so Paul lived uh, next to Peter for 3 years right in the midst of, you know, Beatlemania. Um so Peter certainly was able to, you know, when they got, when they got their recording contract, they needed a, a song. Um, and he, so he had heard Paul uh, sing this song, A World Without Love. It wasn't finished. Um, and he said, you know, that, that might be right for us. Can we, can we use it? And Paul said, sure. I mean, he was happy to find a home for it because John Lennon was not interested in, in it as a Beatles song. So, yeah, over the years, uh, Paul did uh, give uh, Peter and Gordon, uh, I think, four four songs altogether that were hits. Of course, you know, when you have a, a great songwriter like Paul McCartney uh, right next door. Uh, but, I mean, you know, sometimes they, I think they felt a little sheepish because a lot of people thought they were just writing on uh, the Beatles' coattail. Um, but they had a lot of hits on their own, you know, that Paul did not write for them. Um so, but yeah, that was handy. It was handy to have Paul <laughs> to have <laughs> Paul around. That's that for sure.
1: And, and Gordon was such a large personality, but, but their talents complemented each other so well. And I, I think, if I remember right, in the book, it was David Crosby who said he would put Peter Asher up there on the uh, the list of uh, one of the greatest harmony singers of all time.
2: Yeah, I was when I got to speak with David. I was saying, you know, who would you? Uh, how would you rate Peter as a as a vocalist? And I was saying, you know, name the greatest, you know, harmonizers in rock and roll. And of course, he named Graham, uh, his partner for so many years, and of course, uh, Phil Everly. Uh, and I think the comment he said was, you know, the Everly Brothers wrote the book. So he named Phil Everly, he named Graham, he named uh, Art Art Garfunkel, uh, and then he said, you know, and I wouldn't be uh, too off the mark to put Peter on that list. Uh, and he said that when when uh, he first heard Peter and Gordon in their harmonies, um, when they were putting the birds together, that was one of the, uh, not necessarily an inspiration, uh, but uh, but uh, uh, something that they were trying to achieve, that same sort of uh, a vocal blend that Peter and Gordon had. Uh, so they were influential in a lot of places that you wouldn't
1: think. Uh, Peter would eventually end up working for Apple Records after that formed uh, the The history of the company uh, is well-documented and the fact that uh, they had lofty ideas, but not a whole lot of business sense there. But but one of the key things that came out of that collaboration was Peter's discovery of uh, a very talented singer-songwriter at uh, what seems like the perfect moment in time for a singer-songwriter to arrive on the scene.
2: Uh, Yeah, that was uh, Peter, uh, you know, he says a a lot of things uh, in... uh, in his career, you know, luck was involved, but he also said, you know, there's no such thing as luck. Uh, what he prefers to call it is happenstance, you know, what happens to happen. But he says the key is, you know, knowing what to do when it happens, you know, how to, how to proceed um, and take advantage of it. And, uh, you know, one day there was a knock on his door and there was this, you know, lanky American uh, standing there, and he said, Oh, I'm a friend of Cooch's. Now, Cooch was uh, uh, Danny Korchmar. And at one point in uh, Peter and Gordon's uh, career, they were doing a tour of the eastern United States, and they needed a pickup band. And they got this group from New York called the King Bees, and the guitarist in the King Bees was Danny Korchmar. And so Peter and Danny stayed in touch, and they were friends. So when uh, his Danny's childhood friend, uh, a gentleman called James Taylor, uh, decided that he was just going to busk around uh, Europe and kind of see what he could do over there. Um, he said, well, you should talk to Peter Asher. You know, this guy, You should. he can help you. So he gave him Peter's uh, address and phone number. And so one day he showed up. He had a demo in his hand, and he said, I'm Cooch's friend. Uh, he told me that he, I should come and see you. Here's my demo. And so Peter, you know, put it on his reel-to-reel. And I think uh, in the book, uh, I spoke with Peter's uh, uh, first wife, and she said that uh, before the first song was over, that uh, she and Peter just turned to each other with their mouths open. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, he discovered James Taylor, and he took him to Apple and signed him up. He was the first artist signed to Apple besides the Beatles. Uh, They did an album together, which really didn't do too much. Uh, But um, once Apple kind of started to fall apart, um, Peter brought uh, James over to the United States and helped him get a contract with Warner Brothers. And that's when they did Sweet Baby James. And, you know, that's really started his career.
1: And uh, you documented so well in the book. And Peter's talked with us about it, too, that that Sweet Baby James album. He was determined, he thought maybe that the, the initial Apple album was a little overproduced and he was determined to create a setting that would allow James's vocals and his writing to shine. And he put together... That incredible ensemble that that played on the album and and did their practice sessions right there in Peter's house.
2: Yeah, they, Peter had a house uh, in uh, Los Angeles, and at the time they moved over there, they really didn't they couldn't bring all their money with them, so there wasn't a lot of furniture in the house. So the whole living room basically became the rehearsal space for uh, James Taylor to uh, to go over the material with uh, Dandy who was the guitarist. Uh, Russ Conkall on drums, and they had uh, uh, Carol King on piano. Uh, Carol King hadn't started her really her solo career yet, uh, so she was just there to provide, you know, as another uh, another musician on the session. But she did a great job, of course. Um, so yeah, they sat in Peter's living room for you know a couple of months, uh, going over that material. Probably not months, more like weeks, I think. Uh, but they would rehearse in the afternoon and then go over to the studio and record stuff. I mean, within two weeks, they, they basically had that album done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he wanted to get everything out of the way. You're right. Uh, the first album, they both James and Peter, say, were was a little too overproduced. And so he just wanted to get everything out of the way. So you really got who James Taylor was. And uh, I mean, he certainly succeeded.
1: And that collaboration with Carol King uh, would proved to be even more fruitful down the road when she uh, shared a song she had written uh, that became the biggest hit of of James's career uh, off the next album, Mudslide Slim and the Blue Horizon. And uh, You've Got a Friend just became a a global phenomenon.
2: Yeah, it uh, it was just something she played. Uh, They were about to do a uh, um, uh, a, uh, concert at uh, the Troubadour in Hollywood, a famous uh, folk club, which is still there. Um, and they were at the sound check that afternoon and she started to play. You've got a friend for the first time for anyone. And, uh, James and Peter, you know, immediately (laughs) again, their mouths were open and they just ran down and said, Oh, you know, teach this. You know, James said, I want, I want to learn this right now, you know, uh, play it again. And they, so they played it, uh, uh, that evening together for the first time. And, uh, he said, you know, I'd really like to record it. And, uh, you know, Carol King, a longtime songwriter since she was a teenager, uh, you know, with the Brill Building and all that, you know. And she said, oh, yeah, sure. You know, you want to record my song? Great. Uh, and then kind of promptly forgot about it. Uh, so it ended up both on her next album, which was Tapestry, which, you know, sold gazillion copies. <laughs> uh, and it was on James's next album. But James had to hit with it. Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, the first uh, I think it was Peter's first number one but his name as, as producer. was uh, You've got a friend.
1: We're talking with David Jacks. His book is Peter Asher, A Life in Music. Well, Peter, with great success at producing and managing James Taylor and then another very fruitful relationship with Linda Ronstadt. And I was surprised to learn from the book that that uh, relationship uh, was never formalized. It was pretty much a handshake deal.
2: Well, that's what Linda told me. She said that, you know, they never really signed a contract, uh, that it was just, you know, if we wanted to work with each other, we'd work with each other. If we didn't want to, then it wasn't going to work if we didn't want to. So, no, there was no, you know, you think in this day and age, you know, you got to have, you know, all lawyers involved and, you know, a 100-page contract and all that. But they just, no, they just entered into it and said, all right, let's 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 do this. And, uh, and yeah, that was pretty uh, fruitful uh, relationship between the two of them.
1: And uh, his production, to me, it stands out um, perhaps better on those Ronstadt records than anything else he did, because they're just, they are so, I I guess, clean is the word I I would use to describe. The the production is just perfect, and it allows her amazing voice to shine.
2: Yeah, yeah, she, uh, I mean, she is, Peter has said many times, uh, Linda's, uh, his favorite all-time female vocalist and of course you can completely understand listening to her records but yeah his 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 production methodology he I mean he likes things to be clean he likes things uh, he likes to you know take uh, live takes and a lot of those Linda Ronstadt records were done live I mean she was singing live people were playing live even sometimes the background vocals would be live uh, and he likes to get you know that kind of immediacy everyone working together but yeah, he likes things precise, he likes things clean. Um uh and yeah, those Linda Ronstadt records, I mean, they still hold up. They they're just amazing. Although Linda a lot of times didn't care for her own performances. I mean, she she's her own, you know, worst mm. critic and <laughs> uh I mean, you know, some things like You're No Good, um which wasn't, you know, her first big massive hit that Peter produced. Um she didn't like her vocal on it. There's, there's stuff that, uh, there's a story that uh, they were doing, uh, what was it, Ooh Baby Baby from one of her albums. And uh, luckily, uh, when they did it live, uh, they did a rough mix that evening of it um, with, uh, you know, the background vocals and everything. Uh, all done live and then she came back the next day and said no 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 my, my i'm flat some of those notes are flat let's erase the vocal and that's and they tried over and over again to get a good vocal but they decided that the feel i mean that's the main thing the groove the feel of it that the feel on that earlier take the rough mix that they had was better than anything they were coming up with so that's what ended up on the album uh so yeah the feel uh, is, is the main thing. And in, 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 some cases it's not perfect, but who cares if, if it feels right, then go with it.
1: I love the story you tell about the bet that Peter made about your are no good with a Florida promoter.
2: Uh, yeah, he, <laughs> uh, he was trying to get her, her price up. And I think he was trying to ask for, I think, $25,000 for this show. And the promoter was sitting saying, well, I'm only I would only pay someone that much if they had a number one hit. And at that point, she didn't have a number one hit. And so Peter said, all right, look, if she if if you're no good, which was, you know, starting to go up the charts at that time, uh, if you're no good, isn't number one. By the time we do the show, you don't have to pay it. <laughs> but if it's number one, uh, you know, it'll be fifty thousand dollars. It's like it's double or nothing. And so the promoter said, well, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the week the week of the performance, just before the show, you know, a few days before, Billboard comes out, and You're No Good is number one. So, uh, yeah, there was, I think, a, a comment from Andrew Gold, who worked with Peter for many years, uh, and uh, Peter produced uh, his second album. Uh, said, you know, just don't bet against Peter, because he's hardly ever wrong. Uh, if you, usually, you know, he said, if, if Peter says to you something's going to be a hit, well, it's going to be a hit, because he just knew.
1: Well, it's been a remarkable life, and uh, Peter uh, remains active, uh, not only uh, performing, uh, doing shows with Jeremy Clyde, uh, doing his own individual shows, uh, his wonderful uh, show that he does on the Beatles channel, on Sirius XM Radio, the book he wrote, uh, Beatles A to Z, he remains very active, and as he uh, said to you in the book, uh, there's not likely to be a retirement at any time. Uh, Peter did have some health problems uh, a few months back, I had... Emergency brain surgery, but you actually uh, did an event with him talking about your book recently, and uh, and you were telling me that uh, Peter Peter seems to be in good health and good spirits.
2: Yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, it seems to have um, uh, gone well. The the surgery went well, and he's he's back. Uh, he's performing again um, next month. I think it is in Massachusetts. I know he's going to be at a Beatle fest uh, that's happening uh, in New York, New Jersey, actually. Um, uh, also, late Mar- yeah, late March, early April, um, and there's other stuff he's doing. He's got an album. He produced an album with uh, Susanna Hoffs, who was the lead singer of the Bangles. And that's coming out, I think, in April. Uh, so yeah, he still has his hand in it. He still loves it, um, and I think he's gonna he's gonna do it for <laughs> maybe even longer than I'm around. You know, <laughs> he just seems to keep going and going. You know, like the Energizer Bunny, I guess. Uh, but he loves it. That's that's the main thing. So uh, why why stop?
1: Well, I love the book. Uh, it's such a, a wonderfully written and researched book, Peter Asher, A Life in Music. It was uh, just a joy to read all the wonderful stories. So uh, congratulations on the, uh, it was an effort indeed, but well worth it uh, for music lovers and those of us who appreciate <laughs> the work of Peter. Uh, David, it's been great to have you on. Thank you so much for being with us, and we wish you much success with the book. Thank you. Thank you, Rich, very much. David Jack's talking about his book, Peter Asher, A Life in Music, here on Downtown, the podcast. When we come back, get your love, Jones, on. We talk about uh, 101 Nights of Great Sex, author Laura Korn, right after this
0: strength.
1: on downtown. An approach that Carrie Haskell uses quite often. They're just, just a beret. Nothing more than that. <laughs> uh, I don't know that we talk about that, but everything else with Laura Korn, whose book 101 Nights of Great Sex has been around for about 30 years. It has become a classic. Uh, we talked with Laura about how to spice up your uh, Valentine's Day and your love life, Laura Corin, here on Downtown. Let's begin with this. 30 years since you self-published this book, could you have imagined 30 years ago that this book would have, uh, boy, everything is a bad pun, but would have this kind of staying power?
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, how how would I know that? A Because it's really a phenomenon that 101 Nights of Great Sex is, selling after 30 years. Now, I've, I've obviously done new editions, but I knew, I will say this, Rich, in the very beginning, when I created the concept of the sealed envelopes, um, that a, it's a book you do and not a book you read, mm. I knew that honestly, I, this sounds kind of conceited, but I knew that it was kind of brilliant because I knew that the number one sex complaint been and still stands true today is that people get in ruts and they get, you know, they do the same thing over and over again. And what we're really looking and the key to long-term passion is novelty, you know, trying new things in and out of the bedroom, you know, and it's hard to get people to, you, you know, we're so busy, we're so distracted, you know, how do you You know, varieties to spice the life, but how do you implement it, execute it? That's the key. That's what's got us all tripped up. And the book is simply a tool and that helps you spice up your love life.
1: Well, and and shouldn't, of of all the things we do in terms of uh, interpersonal uh, reactions and relationships, gosh, out of all of them, shouldn't sex be fun?
0: Oh, but, you know, it should. I don't think it's possible. It's going to be fun every time. I think most of us are going to have sex. It's going to be kind of the same old, same old kind of comfort sex, and that's great. But at the end of the day, and I know especially for women, whenever you introduce something new in the bedroom, you increase the spirit of adventure, right? Right. And I think we all kind of want our partner to bring Spice, some novelty, into the bedroom. We're waiting for it. And um, this I don't know if you read Reddit, but I've learned so much on uh, Reddit about something called DB. Do you know what DB stands for? I do not. DB is dead bedroom. Oh, no. <laughs> you don't know anything about it. I love that.
1: That's well, awesome. well, we just don't have a name for it in my house, but I, I guess we do now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, but if you are with a partner, I mean, Charlie and I, you know, we read it together. We laugh and we're like, oh, shit, oh, my God. You know, like we, you, you learned so much and you don't want it to happen to you. But it's like reading it, it's like every single couple talks about, oh, I love my partner. There's, you know, we're, we're great roommates. We do this, you know, we go out, we have dinner, but it's DB. DB, <laughs> DB, 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 DB. And, you know, want to scream and go, it doesn't have to be that way. And, you know, I always think about this. Why should you give your partner a book this Valentine's Day? What makes a book such a great
1: gift? Oh, you're asking me that? I am, Rick. Well, I think uh, because this book is, uh, I I think it opens some doors. Uh, It's it's a way of communicating something that you maybe aren't sure how to do on your own. And I mean, I've only, I haven't looked through the entire book because I I wanted to wait and, and experience some of it new with you. But for instance, I opened up a chapter uh 71 which is for her eyes only i i cheated a little bit it's uh everything
0: <laughs> of course you did you went over to her
1: envelope. I, I did i did but it's it's everything in the kitchen sink and now here's me jokingly i said well you know i i hope we get the dirty dishes out of the sink but oh no i was wrong you want those dirty dishes left right in there <laughs>
0: oh, my God. I, you know, I love the fact.
1: I'm taking out the butter knife, though. I tell you that, Laura.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, just butter the corn. <laughs> I love a little butter on me. Anyway, you know what? But that's, see, I love that because for people who are not familiar with the book, you know, it's the book you do. There are 101 sealed envelopes, 50 for his eyes only, 50 for her eyes only, and then one you do at the very end. But every envelope has a title. And Rich was just talking about number seventy-one, and it's called Everything in the Kitchen Sink. So how you would do it is she would rip that filled envelope out, and you would see her rip out the envelope and she'd say Saturday night, honey, or whatever the <laughs> is. And now you have something to look forward to. And my formula, and what and this has worked for thirty years. This has sold millions of books. And I have not only written this book. I wrote nine books. Right. All based on one word, anticipation. I'm the only author that talks about it. I'm the only one that nails it for long-term passion. Anticipation is everything. And it's so easy to do. And it's so simple. Um, When you rip out an envelope in front of your partner – they get excited and it's just
1: based it's science so uh, laura let me let me ask you we're talking by the way with laura corn here on downtown the book is 101 nights of great sex secret sealed seductions for fun-loving couples so you know, my idea originally was you know you you uh, maybe close your eyes. You reach in. You pull one out, and off you go to the races. But what you're saying is, if I'm if I'm understanding properly here, maybe it's better to do this a few days ahead of time to add more of that anticipation and and increase the buildup.
0: Oh, it's everything. It's 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 um. It you know, like if you like football, I love football. This is pregame. This is this is where you sit and you're you know. I mean, sports is nothing but anticipation. Think about it. Entertainment is based on anticipation. And in relationships, long-term relationships, that's the key thing they miss. They get into a routine. So the book, when you rip out a sealed envelope, like you said, you do it in front of your partner. And the more days you tease your partner, the more anticipation.
1: Plus, if you have to shop, if you're like, I don't think we have a really good feather duster or the blindfold that would be most comfortable, so I've got to run to the store.
0: Well... I'm glad you mentioned that because <laughs> on the outside, if you notice, on the outside of every sealed envelope, there are like these little icons. Yes, and the icons kind of give you a hint. Like if there's no icons, means you could pro- probably pull it off that night, right? Right. But if you have a little car icon, guess what?
1: We're going somewhere. You're,
0: go- you're going somewhere, <laughs> 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 and she sees that art. She. Or he, he's sees that ki, uh, that icon, or like um, the the dollar sign. Some cost ten dollars. Some cost no money. Some are like sweeper off her of feet, like have a, a hundred dollars on it. But very few of those. And then you have a little mask. Mask means rich. What do you think the mask?
1: Well, it's either some role playing or a costume. Toy. I'm, I'm guessing. Oh, oh yeah. even better.
0: Yeah there's a little toy and I've tested all the toys that I recommend inside the envelopes. And so you've you know, my test bedroom, you get the corn seal of approval, but mostly it's playful. It, every envelope sends a message to your partner that you want to surprise them. You want to make them feel like a million bucks. And, And by the way, most people change the recipe. They open up the sealed envelope, and this is what I love the most. And they read, you know, my, m- m- my recipe, and then they add stuff. They toss stuff. You know what I mean? They make it their own.
1: I also love uh, this little tidbit that I happened to notice when I opened number seven, bang for the buck, that I can, uh, I can send my wife a little teaser by typing in the link that's down here, and it's an online link. Just to uh, well, give her more of an inkling about what's coming her way.
0: I I know that again, anticipation. Each uh, <clears throat> each field envelope, each night has a t- uh, an electronic tease that you sent, that can go to her phone, her email box, and it gives your partner three clues. Again, three clues. <laughs> of how you're going to make me feel. I mean, I'm telling you, the the reviews on Amazon are things like, you know, I've never seen my wife this happy. It's about attention, if you think about right, it. Right, right. And it, I, I I I love this book. I could not... And by the way, when you give somebody a book, when you read a book, can I just say this? Um, you become smarter. <laughs> Oh yes, I I I mean, and most men now. Now consider this: ninety percent of men have never never bought a book on sex.
1: I, I, I believe that absolutely, yeah, because don't I, I don't claim to speak for all men, but but I think most men feel like, oh, please, I understand how to do what needs to be done. <laughs> well meanwhile, their women are rolling their eyes like, oh God, yes, you know everything. Oh yes.
0: Well, no, but it's not even that. It's, it's you want to, buying a book on sex is like saying, I want to be a better lover. Mm. It is such a hot thing to do. Women buy 68% of all books. They love books, whether it's digital, uh, a real, you know, this is a tactile book. It's got, you know, it's envelopes. And, and, and I mean, I, I can't tell you the, the tens of thousands of women saying my husband my boyfriend bought this book and it's changed our love life it's amazing i see him reading the book and i get excited so so uh, what can i say <laughs> it's <laughs> well, awesome
1: well laura let me ask you this so uh, i mean you've you've been doing this for a long time what what gets couples into ruts? Obviously, uh, you know, we've got a nine-year-old in our house, so that, that creates some challenges. Uh, is it kids? Is it just routine? Is it fatigue? What are the biggest causes of getting into these ruts where you're not giving each other the attention you'd like to?
0: I think it's the biggest challenge for passion in a relationship. It's so easy to do. Um, I- I'll give you the number one reason why people get into a rut. You ready? Yes. Um, You know, when I ask the question, why don't you spice up your love life? Everyone knows they should spice up their love life. And Valentine's Day is Super Bowl, is the Super Bowl for women. (laughs) They are looking for the creativity behind the gesture. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for creativity. They're not looking for the same thing. So the number one reason why we don't spice it up, it's so simple. And this is why we get into a rut. It's because we don't have to spice it up. Mm. Yeah. So if I yep. say to you, where on your to-do list this week is making your partner feel special. It's not there. Not there. You're thinking about it now because Valentine's Day is coming, right. and that's a good thing. But because you've got, we're so distracted—the internet, our jobs, the kids, the dog, that everything just conspires to to you know um, to rob you of that that passion and that playfulness. You, people need a tool, and I'm telling you, chocolates and teddy bears and those—that's not a tool for long-term passion. A tool is this book, because this book teaches you a formula. When you rip out an envelope, you create anticipation.
1: Well, I, and I love that it, you, you talk about yeah. tools, because I when I looked at this book, I thought, you know, what this really does, uh, not only the initial awesomeness of, of trying these things out, but it, it gives you such an expanded toolkit of things that you can go back to later. You know, so two years down the road, you're like, Hey, remember remember, Heels Overhead? Yeah, let's revisit that again.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what? I'm going to be really honest with you. I mean, I'm always an honest honest person, but I think when people buy the book from all these years, remember, this book has been selling since 1994. That's extraordinary. That's how uh, solid the concept is because when you practice Uh, And I don't mean the word practice, but when you play and you rip out the sealed envelope, you you know you create anticipation, and then when your partner shows up in the bedroom, you have fun, you try something new, and the book is giving you permission to kind of do these fun things. But it's 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 um, kind of lost my thought there. But um, (laughs) (laughs) it's fun. No, no, no. I had a point. But it's just. You, oh, you practice this this anticipation plus creativity equals great sex. You practice it. I was going to say, I think most couples do about 10 of these nights.
1: Oh, good, then, because I was getting worried. Like, All right, 101, yeah. that gets me through uh, late spring, early summer. Then I'm uh, left to my own <laughs> devices. Come on, Laura.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have other books, too. But um, if I, you know. I mean, I've read reviews, and they're on Amazon. They've done all 101, and that's, you know, that's amazing. But I think I think when you see how this formula works, that really it doesn't take any time to rip out an envelope. It doesn't take any time to read one page. Not really. No. A few minutes, and you're going, oh, wow, that's kind of a cool idea. And And bottom line, Women, guys, action equals attraction. Remember that.
1: So do you find that people sort of leaf through the book or, or look at the uh, the chapter titles and, and sort of pick and choose? But and, well, this sounds interesting. Hmm. Wonder what this is all about.
0: No, what What I suggest in the introduction is you get into bed with your partner and you flip through the titles together. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, wow. Like you said, I, what's cybergasm number 37? Ooh, wait a minute. 23. Bad to the boner. Rip that one out. <laughs> uh, Go ahead, honey. I dare you.
1: Rip why it is it that I was immediately drawn to 76 Obstacle Course?
0: Uh, I don't know. <laughs> because that's so interesting. Do you know there is um, a thing called Did I talk about the erotic equation?
1: No. Uh, uh, so the I'm not good equation. at math though, Laura, so you gotta go slow.
0: <laughs> I know it's so easy. Okay. So you went to obstacle course. You went to obstacle course because in your brain you know this. This is the erotic equation. It's really science. Are you ready? I Attraction am right. plus obstacles equals hot sex. Mm. Now what's an obstacle? What do you think is a- that, this is really hot. What is an obstacle?
1: Mm. Well, I haven't opened this up, so... Uh, well, uh, there's
0: a lot of obstacles. Let's sure. say, and I know as relationships get, you know, you've been together five years, so, you know, you probably stopped having sex in your car or in a danger of cop being situation, <laughs> or you're spending the night at your parents' house and you're, you know, and you're in a, an extra bedroom. But those things are really obstacles. Oh, right. Right? And that creates hot sex. And so you went right to 76 because you thought, hmm, (laughs) that's for his eyes only page. And basically inside that envelope is a way to create an obstacle. Thus,
1: hot sex. Fabulous. Well, it, Laura, the book is so brilliant. It's such a wonderful Aww. idea and provides such great inspiration. Uh, you you discovered gold 30 years ago, and uh, the readers keep getting the benefits of your discovery here.
0: Right. And remember, if you're in a bedroom rut, if you're in that kind of routine, you need a tool. There's no better tool than 101 Nights of Great Sex. And you're a hero or a hero West, I don't even know about the word. I just made it up. When you get this book for a Valentine's Day gift and you give it to your partner, and I promise you, you will have the best sex of your life. Or my name is not Corn.
1: No. And my name's Corn. No DB for me. That's what I'm saying. No DB for me.
0: And remember, when a woman's heart melts, her legs will
1: follow. There you go, Laura Korn. The book is 101 Nights of Great Sex, Secret Sealed Seductions for Fun-Loving Couples. Laura, what a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I I probably don't have to say it, but I hope you have a very happy Valentine's Day.
0: I I hope you too. Thank you guys so much. I love being on your show.
1: Laura Korn, author of 101 Nights of Great Sex, Secret Sealed Seductions for Fun-Loving Couples. Our thanks to Laura. Our thanks as well to author David Jacks and to you for joining us. We'll see you next time here on Downtown, the podcast.